Tonight's teaching comes from Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look tonight at verses 1 through 9. It's the call of Abram. I'm probably going to interchange Abram and Abraham tonight, so don't call me out on that. Uh, I might even call him Abe. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. But some variation of Abram or Abraham, it's, it's the same guy. The Lord changes his name from father to father of many as time goes on. But we read from chapter 12, and it goes like this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. This is God's word. Uh, Where we're at contextually and historically in Genesis 12 is we're at about 2100 BC. And to put into perspective where that is in the Bible, so everything from creation up until this point, everything from creation through the flood and even up to the like Tower of Babel, uh, so Genesis 1 through 9 and then Genesis essentially 1 through 11, that's a period of like 2,000 plus years. Now, what we're looking at here, the call of Abram and Abram's narrative, this is the start of a new kind of chapter, so to speak, narratively in the Bible. And the second half of Abram's life and moving forward, the span of about 100 years, he lives to 175, that covers about 14 chapters in the Bible. In other words, so everything up till this point is like 9 to 11 chapters. Half of Abram's life from here on forward is like 14 chapters. So the real question, the pertinent question is, why does so much ink get spilled specifically on the life and times of Abram? And the answer to that is is really two things. Number one, Abram is going to be the father of a nation that's not just any nation, but is God's people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. And not only that, but all nations on earth are going to be blessed through a special descendant from that offspring. The Savior is going to come through his line. So, There was that cluster of promises right there in verses 2 through 3. And it said things like, all nations on earth, uh, you will become a great nation. All nations on earth will be blessed through you. And even right down to the way that everybody around the world treats your specific people. They will be blessed or they will be cursed on the basis of how they interact with your nation and your family, Abraham. Okay? So, uh, he's, he's like the pivot point nation, the pivot point family of all Of all people, this is, I mean, even today, uh, three major world religions and essentially half the planet trace their religious history back to Father Abraham. It's a big deal. The second reason he's a big deal, though, 
is something that Christian commentators have noted for years, and that the life of Abraham is essentially the prototype of the Christian faith. Why? Well, why is Abram called? We'll get to this in more detail in a second, but Abraham's called not because he's such a faithful guy to God. He's a non-believer. He worships pagan deities. He's called entirely by grace. God promises, a ton, promises to him a ton of blessings. It's somewhat vague, but a ton of blessings. Abraham pr- repeatedly proves himself to be undeserving of the calling that God has extended to him. And yet, nonetheless, God remains faithful, even though Abraham wasn't always faithful. God forgives him uh, in Abraham's repentance, and they are reconciled to one another. That same basic pattern is the entire blueprint. It's the exact template of every Christian believer, of every sinful believer. Uh, Abraham is essentially a template for the Christian faith. In fact, uh, those of you who were here this summer when we went through Romans, it's one of the things we said in Romans chapter 4. Uh, is Abraham is righteous. Why? By, because he was so faithful? No, Abraham is righteous through faith, not because of his faithfulness. He's gifted righteousness. That is the life of a Christian. Okay? And um, so tonight, what we're, we're looking at is this basic idea that, that, you know, when you trust, the basic premise of Abraham's life is when you trust the Lord's promises, no test is impossible and no failure is permanent. In God's basic MO, as we look at the call of believers, God's basic MO in calling believers uh, looks essentially like this. I'm going to break it into these three teaching points. We're going to talk about the, the confusion attached to calls, the reality that exists in calls, and the grace that exists in the call of God. So the confusion about calls, especially, <clears throat> I think people within the context of this church body have heard a lot about calls throughout their lives. And anytime there's like an inherited uh, assumption or knowledge of something, there's always some like folklore and mistaken ideas that creep in there along the way. So we're going to deprogram a little bit of that here tonight and unpack the confusion of calls. We'll talk about reality of calls. Where do they come from? Why do they come? And what are the implications attached to those calls? And then the grace that exists in every Christian call. I think sometimes unnecessarily we, we separate the idea of being called to be a Christian and being called uh, essentially into ministry. Those aren't nearly as far apart and as distinct as you might think. If God brings you in, he intends to send you out to use the gifts that he's equipped you with to serve humanity. That's called, ministry means service. If God brings you in and calls you to be his own, he is going to send you out to do ministry. Get comfortable with that idea. That's what every believer does, okay? So first of all, the confusion about calls. I'll, I'll, there's more than two, but I'm going to limit it to two here tonight. Number one. Uh, who gets called? At the risk of, you know, lest I get confused on Reformation Weekend of not sounding Reformation-y enough, uh, I will share with you what is oftentimes an overlooked but incredibly valuable principle of the Reformation, which is ca- something called the doctrine of vocation. Uh, it's something that's been missed for probably hundreds of years in the Christian faith. It's gotten a lot popular in the past, I think, 20, 30 Uh, or so more years, people have become interested in this idea. But vocation is the personal calling that every believer gets from God and in a special equipping of the Holy Spirit in all of that. Now, the reason this needed to be rediscovered is because during the medieval church, uh, the, the existing church on earth at the time, the Roman Catholic Church, had something called the Sacrament of Holy Orders. 
And the sacrament of holy orders is the idea that the entire world is divided into two parts, the sacred and the secular, the religious and the non-religious. And therefore the people are essentially divided into two parts too. You have the, the professional, highly spiritual people, the priests and the nuns and the monks, and then you have kind of like the lay people, right? Um, and what Luther did in, in essentially translating the Bible into the accessible language of the common people, not only did the gospel get into their lives, but they understood that ministry was also theirs. So as the gospel now became accessible to them, they become equipped so that essentially what is overturned is the professional clergy idea for the sake of the universal priesthood of all believers, the idea that God wants all people involved in ministry. And specifically what Luther said is he said all work is part of God's calling. And so essentially if you are a farmer or if you're a doctor or if you're a tradesperson or if you're an artist, in some respects you are just as much called as any preacher. Why? Because while God undeniably cares about word ministry, he doesn't only care about word ministry. See? He absolutely cares about gospel word ministry, but the only form of ministry is not simply word ministry. We're all built and redeemed and called to ministry. And for that matter, not only is it not only word ministry, but also he doesn't want the word ministry to be entirely occupied by professional uh, clergy. It, doesn't, it shouldn't be purely carried out by the professionals. And therefore, what's our first principle? As we're unpacking this, this idea of the confusion about who gets called, the first thing that we want to say is all believers are rightly called and gifted by God for the purpose of ministry, that is, serving other people with those gifts. Okay? If you're called by God, you're called into, in a sense, ministry. Secondly, second confusion is how do people get called? And the distinction that I have here is the distinction between an immediate and immediate call. Immediate would be directly, like lightning bolt, direct connection between God and you. Immediate would be God working through a different type of medium along the way. Now, the hard part is it's so obvious with Abraham. You know, God, he comes to Abraham in HD. He gets every possible, it's audio, it's visual. And this is the first of seven times it's recorded that Abraham has interactions with God like this. And so it's so obvious that Abraham is in fact being called. God doesn't do this with everybody. God doesn't do this with most people. Abraham is very rare, even amongst the other uh, heroes of faith in the Bible in this regard. And in fact, uh, some of you have heard me say this before. I was in a meeting earlier today where somebody pointed this out. Uh, I'm, I'm completely convinced, uh, reading some Bible commentators, that God has essentially interacted with his people throughout history according to three waves of the persons of God. So God the Father in the Old Testament seemingly directly interacts with some of his people and he speaks to others through uh, the prophets that he inspires. And then when you get to the New Testament and it's the Gospels, God obviously speaks to his people primarily through the Son, right there in the flesh. But then Jesus is going to ascend and he says, don't worry, uh, a matter of days later, I am going to send my spirit and the spirit is going to outpour on my people and that is the age in which we live here today. The outpouring of the spirit. And what does the spirit do? He inspires the scriptures to be written. So God speaks to us through the word, 
that is recorded and compiled for us, and he also indwells his people in a special sort of way. Now, if that's true, if we live in an age where God primarily interacts with his people according to the inspired word and the indwelling of the spirit, how does that impact our perception of how people go about getting called? Okay. Well, do people get called the same way that Abram gets called today? Could God call somebody the way Abraham got called? Could is almost always the wrong question when it comes to what is God capable of because it's not going to provide a whole lot of clarity in the process. Would God do that is a better question and what has God promised to do is an even better question. Now, if God has operated primarily according to his inspired word and according to the indwelling of his spirit, it seems like the calls that he is going to make are primarily going to be done on behalf of the people or through the people that he indwells. So let me put it like this in very practical terms. When somebody says to me, the Lord has called me to do blank, and they'll put it in a couple of different ways. The Lord has laid blank on my heart. The Lord has moved me to do blank. The first question that I ask in response to that typically is, well, how do you know? Right? And I don't want to be disrespectful, and I don't want to be antagonistic, but I also know that when people have started that sentence before throughout history, it has gone terribly wrong, people who thought they were acting in the name of God. And so uh, how do you know for sure? It's, a, it's an honest question. How do you know this? The Lord has laid blank upon my heart. How do you know Satan hasn't laid blank upon your heart? How do you know you don't just have a very strong feeling inside of you and that's what's upon your heart? How can you be certain what exactly exists upon your heart? Uh, my favorite illustration of this is uh, one of the most influential preachers of all time, uh, an uh, Anglican minister by the name of George Whitfield in the 18th century. His first child was born in 1743. And he had this incredibly strong feeling that his, his first child, a son, was going to uh, be a minister to and impact so many more people than his ministry did. And Whitfield had influenced thousands upon thousands of people in England. And at the child's baptism, Whitfield says, you know, the Lord has maybe used me to influence uh, with gospel ministry thousands of people, but this boy God is going to work through to reach tens of thousands kind of thing. He names him John because he said he's going to be like John the Baptist. He's going to turn so many hearts away from sin and towards Jesus Christ. Four months later, little John Whitfield dies of a seizure. And the family is obviously grieved because they've lost their son. But George Whitfield is doubly grieved. You know why? He's lost his professional credibility too. And he has to get up in front of his congregation. And he has to confess, you know what? Uh, a couple months ago, I told you uh, the intuitions that were in my heart and the impulses of my heart were essentially tantamount to God's word. And I was wrong. In other words, he had, I had interpreted my feelings mistakenly as God speaking directly to my heart. That was an important lesson to learn. Now, what is the lesson here? The lesson is not, I am not saying that God never guides our thoughts, and I am not saying that God never moves our hearts, and I am not saying that God does not uh, influence us towards wise courses of action. But we cannot be sure, this is a principle of the Reformation, we cannot be sure that God is speaking to us unless we read it in Scripture. And there is a tremendous danger and has been spiritual danger throughout history in overestimating what is called the immediate call. Now, 
Truth be told, to be fair, there is a danger on the other side too. There is a danger in the immediate calling thing. The immediate calling is the idea, again, that God operates through fellow believers. And some of you have partaken in this whole call process thing before, and you've sat in on a call meeting. And you know what we do essentially in that, that, that process. The idea is the Spirit works through the medium of the congregation who have some kind of collective consensus to essentially speak to an individual. And then we say that person, because that group of believers that the Spirit indwells talked to, to that person, they, the Lord worked through them. That person is rightly called by God, and that's why if they accept that call, we refer to that person as a called worker, right? And yet, again, we're still sola scriptura Christians. We are exercising caution throughout the process. In one of those meetings, what do we do? We don't just wait until somebody gets a, a, a strange feeling about something and then act on the basis of that. And we also, we also don't just flip through the pages of Scripture and look for the name of somebody and think maybe we're supposed to call that person that we find in the Bible. Like that passage, we're going to be flipping a while, right? So what do we do? Essentially, what we do as God's people who trust that we have God's Spirit residing amongst us as we come together is we also use the brains that God gave us. And we use a principle that I'll refer to as the affinity, ability, and the opportunity principle. I didn't come up with this on my own. Uh, go figure. Tim Keller wrote a paper on this 15 years ago, and I filed it away. I've shared it with some of you. The specific thing, if you want to look it up online, it's called vocation, discerning your calling. But I think it's especially helpful. It's, it's helpful for congregations, and it's helpful for individuals. And it looks like this. So essentially, the affinity process is uh, what moves me? What are the needs of the community that are around me? In other words, a lot of people, when they realize they've been called by God with gifts to serve, the first thing they do is they think, what do I want to do? Or what am I gifted to do? That's the wrong place to start. Why? Because it's me first attempts at serving. Instead, what you should do is you should say, what are the needs of the community? In other words, what is the brokenness that exists in the people around me that also breaks my heart? What affinity has, has, has been placed there? Second thing you do is you look at those abilities that God has given you. And those are natural, native-born gifts and abilities, earthly abilities. And it's also the spiritual gifts that the Spirit has been developing in you throughout the course of time. Now, you don't do that alone either. You ask other people what those specific gifts are. So that's affinity, that's, abil that's ability, and the third point is opportunity. What has your congregation been asking you to do? If God lives in the people around you and in this community, what, what have you been being asked to do? What, has, what, has, what have your, your congregational leaders been saying, wow, we have tremendous needs in this area? Okay? So affinity, ability, opportunity. Uh, you're assessing the needs of the community. You're assessing the personal abilities you have. You're assessing what the body is asking you to do. And therefore, the, the second point to clear up the second confusion here is God typically calls people to ministry by working through the body of believers to help assess needs, talents, and opportunities. Okay? Now, it's a lot of time unpacking confusions, I know. Uh, but here's the reality. And we're going to do a from something to something for something real quick. From something which is already known. Um, now, I want to share with you a passage from Joshua 24. This is the passage that more than, I've been into a lot of Christian homes before. And more than any other passage, this is the one that I see emblazoned on plaques above door frames as people enter into a house. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's a great passage. It's a great theme for your home. The problem for me is people take out one of the best parts. 
It's a condemning part, but it's a great part. Uh, the specifically what it says in Joshua 24 is, but if, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That middle part is crazy insightful. This is Joshua leading God's people into the promised land after Moses. And he says, look, there's two things that you need to watch out for. There's two disproportionate influences that exist in your life that are trying to pull you away from relationship with God. And you catch what they are? If you've been through premarital counseling, we've gone through this before, which is an increasing number of you. A lot of you have gone through premarital counseling with me, it seems. But uh, that the gods your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates, your ancestors, your family, Whatever idols exist in your family that you grew up in, that has disproportionate influence on your life. Whatever you grew up in, whatever was normal for you, that were misprioritized loves and values in the family, that's got a lot of influence on you. And so does the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. You know what that is? That's the current culture that you find yourself in. Your family history and your current culture have disproportionate levels of influence on trying to pull your heart away from God. In other words, if you were born 500 years ago to a different family in China, you would struggle with different temptations than you probably do today. Why? Because it's a different set of idols. And therefore, when God calls you, he he doesn't just call you. He always calls you out. He always calls you away. And that's why he says to Abraham, you, I'm going to call you and you're going to be mine, but you're not going to stay where you're at. I need you to get on up out of there. You need to leave that stuff behind. The family stuff and the culture stuff. Abraham gets called away. Abraham gets detached from his former life. This, by the way, is the process of sanctification where God sets you apart to be pure and holy for his particular purposes. And you notice it's not particularly comfortable. Uh, He says, I want you to leave your familiar culture. I want you to leave your prosperous and prominent family. I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to leave your safety zone and your comfort zone. I want you to go someplace and guess what? I'm not even going to tell you where you're going. I just want you to get up and go. And guess what? You're also going to have a bunch of family members who are going to wonder, you're crazy. What on earth are you doing? Why are you leaving everybody? Why are you, why are you leaving the family? Don't you love us? And guess what it's also going to do? It's absolutely this call and this journey is going to cut into your wallet and it is going to cut into your weekends and is going to cut into your vacation. And yet, you know what, Abraham? If you want people to study 4,000 years from now how incredibly uh, a man of faith and trust in my promises you are, that's exactly what you got to do. And for that matter, Abraham, if you want to honor and glorify God, that's what you got to get up and go and do. See, God never just calls you. He always calls you away from things in your past. What he also does is he calls us to something unknown. Abraham had no clue where he was going. That is a complete surrender. He goes down to the ancient city of Shechem in Canaan, and he realizes, he's un- he realizes this place is already inhabited. God has said, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. He gets there. Think, he's 75 years old. He's got no kids. He's married. His wife is 65 and barren. And uh, they are supposed to turn into an incredible nation. They've left behind their family. They've left behind everything that is familiar. And they find out they're now in a land and they're supposed to start a nation. It's already occupied. They don't even get their own piece of land and platch of land to, to work this out. And it's going to have to be Abram's descendants who dispossess 
a very proud, uh, very corrupt, very fierce Canaanite people. And as though that's not enough, shortly after Abraham gets there, why not? There's a famine in the land too. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, he gets up and he follows God. So things get easy in his life, right? No. Uh, following God does not make your life easier like that. In fact, it very often makes your life harder. Uh, but, you know, along the way, God doesn't tell him, he doesn't give him explanations, and he doesn't give him reasons for what he's doing. What he does do is he reiterates the exact same promises. That's interesting. And so he appears to him again, and in verse 7 he says, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. Just like I already told you a couple of verses ago, I'm going to give this land. So he builds an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Why does this have to be such a difficult process? Because Abraham, remember he's the prototype of faith. Like every believer, every subsequent believer, he needs to learn that the only safe foundation in his life is not what he sees and not what he feels, but what God has already said to him. And I'll tell you what, if God had described this promised land in incredibly glowing terms, Abraham might have gotten up and gone, but he might have gotten up and gone out of self-interest, not out of submission. And what a triune God ultimately wants from you is he wants relationship from you. And unless he gets you to trust him, you really don't have deep relationship. Now, furthermore, what's also interesting, Abraham, the hero of faith, he never actually fully seizes the promised land. Uh, his whole life is lived in a gap between a promise and a reality. It's incredibly uncomfortable. It would have been much more comfortable if God had just left him back with his parents in Ur of the Chaldees and he had a familiar family and familiar uh, culture. and all. That would have been a lot more comfortable. It also would have been more comfortable if God would have taken him and made him a promised land, uh, made him a nation instantaneously. And they popped up and they were prominent and they were prosperous and that would have been very comfortable too. He doesn't do that. Abraham lives his entire life, the entire time we get to know him, he lives essentially in the in-between. This crazy place somewhere between called and home. Somewhere between justified and glorified. Somewhere in the existence of already but not yet. And that is your life as a believer. You are a stranger in this world, an exile, knowing that God has called you by grace to future glory. Knowing that God has equipped you to serve along the way in the journey. But startlingly unaware of exactly where he's taking you and exactly what he's going to ask of you along the way. Um... There's two interesting images that as I study Abraham for the next couple of weeks keep popping up. His tent and his altar. If you're, some of us are visual people and some of us are verbal people, think about Abraham and it's just a constant tent and altar. And every time he wanders too far away from either one of those things, things start to go bad. When he starts wandering into somebody else's tent or when he gets, doesn't circle back to his altar fast enough, uh, things start to go wrong. An altar and a tent, a tent and an altar. I am but a stranger here, tent, heaven is my home, altar. And the, the final thing that I want to show you in this section is, I, you know, it's one of those things that I don't see it until I've studied it for like 20 hours at a time, but uh, that I, I saw this week, this is the coolest thing to me, one of the things that, that scripture is telling you, uh, it, it, you can't see it in English, but the, the trip essentially goes like this. God says, from there, Abraham went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Essentially, what this is telling you is Abraham is traveling from one spot to the next. And the, the word Ai in Hebrew means ruin. And the word Bethel in Hebrew means house, Beit El is house of God. 
God has called Abraham and he's on a journey from a place of ruin ultimately to the place that is the house of God. And guess what? He's living on a tent in between. That's your life. And he's called you along the way for something. Whatever amount of time that you get on this planet is for usefulness in his kingdom. And um, when God calls you, if you get up and go, he will, he promises, he will use you. Live not according to what you see. Live not according to what you feel. Live according to what he has promised you, just like Abraham. And tell you what, not just what he promised Abraham, what he's promised you, just specifically you. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I won't give you more than you can handle. I will uh, give you everything that you've ever done wrong. The worst thing, the dirtiest thing that you've ever done I absolutely forgive that transgression. And if you've done it a thousand times, I've forgiven it a thousand and ten times. And even if you continue to beat yourself up over the same thing, I will never beat you up for that because I will take the beating in your place for that. That's a promise. He's forgiven all your transgressions. Uh, He has prepared a place in heaven for you that's got your name on it. He will always provide for you and always protect you. And uh, finally, he's going to use you. Here on earth, get up and go. He has plans and purposes for you, not just to get to his kingdom, but here's the thing. He's going to use you to build his kingdom. And interestingly enough, he rarely gets any more specific than that. Why? Because he doesn't want you to follow out of self-interest. He wants you to follow out of submission. He wants you to trust him because he wants a relationship with you. Final point. The grace that exists in the call. Abraham, we said, is like a prototype of faith. So the the natural question is, so why does God call specifically Abraham? Why him amongst so many others? Is it because he is simply so faithful? That can't be the the answer. Because all you have to do is continue to read the rest of the narrative of Abraham. In the next upcoming chapters, the guy is uh, is going to pimp out his wife, not once, but twice. And along the way, in between those sections, he's going to impregnate the maidservant of his wife. Abraham is not sinless. Uh, He's not saved because he's proportionately more faithful than everybody else. And by the way, I don't share that stuff with you because, I mean, certainly it's in Scripture, but I I have had guys uh, in my office before that that point to the mistakes that heroes of faith make and point to the mistakes of David and point to the mistakes of Abraham and say, well, those guys did it and almost try to say, like, it must not be that big of a deal and play that game and that is not the case. Even though uh, their, their salvation was not necessarily jeopardized from their sins, lives of their loved ones were absolutely ruined by some of these sins, uh, their earthly lives. But that's the reason I share it, is because I need you to see that Abraham was not chosen because he is proportionately so incredibly faithful. Rather, Abraham is a sinner that is saved by grace through faith, not due to faith. Okay? Uh, Abraham is saved by grace alone. Abraham is saved by faith alone. Abraham is saved by God's promises alone. And God's call into your life to bring you into his family. God's call to bring you to minister and to serve other people with the gifts that he's given you. God's call to you to bring you from Ai to Bethel. It works the exact same way in your life. By grace, through faith, according to the promises that have already been stated of a very good God. What makes this possible? How does God make sinful beings righteous children. It happens because he also called his only inherently righteous child to die for the sins of all the sinful ones. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to look at Abraham. And one of the things we're going to see is eventually Abraham is given a child. 
Abraham is given a son, and that son, some of you know the story goes, he's going to go to Mount Moriah, and he's going to go there with the intention of being sacrificed, and God stops him short. But everybody can see uh, that that is supposed to point ahead. That points ahead to another son that is actually going to complete the sacrifice on our behalf. And God is going to call his own son from a place of comfort, from the father's house. He leaves the ultimate security to come down to earth to do ministry. He became homeless. He traveled deep into the abyss. And at the cross, he became actually fatherless. Why? Because he loves you so much. And therefore, called by God, he used his gifts to become infinitely useful for the kingdom. He lost his home so that you could have a home. He lost his father for a time at the cross so that you can have an eternal father. He paid for all of our sins so that you will never be forsaken. And he loved us like that so that when God has called us, we would fearlessly get up and go, serving faithfully and usefully in the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us useful. Make us fearless. Help us get up and go, led by your spirit to build your kingdom to your glory. In your name we pray, amen.